Deuteronomy chapter 19, and we're just going to read a very short portion of it later on. I've been thinking about this uh, passage for the last week or so, and I was reading a few bits and pieces about Spurgeon and others. You know, we often seek to stand for the truth in the inspired word of God. And when we do that, we're often accused of not having love. Uh, No love for those who err from the truth. And just listen to what Spurgeon had to say on this particular point. This was way back in 1887. You know, I I read a few people who have written commentaries and that type of thing in the 1880s, 1840s, 1850s. And they considered things were very bad in their day. I don't know what they would consider things were like in the present day. And this was written in his magazine in 1887 and there had been a downgrading of doctrine and there was a thing called the great downgrading debate which affected him as we've said on quite a few occasions it affected his health eventually he he felt so strongly and it affected him so much that as I've said before his wife said it led him to an earlier grave than he should have, would have been expected to, to, to go to. And here's what he said. The barefaced manner in which certain persons assert that to separate from men who hold vital errors is contrary to the mind of Christ. He goes on to say it would be amusing if it were not saddening. They write as if such a book as the New Testament were not in existence. They evidently decide what the mind of Christ ought to be, without referring to such poor creatures as the apostles. As for us, we think more of Paul and John than of the whole body of modern thinkers. What saith the scriptures? If there come any unto you, and bring not this doctrine, receive him not into your house neither bid him God speed. For he that biddeth him God speed is partaker of his evil deeds. Second John 10 and 11. He goes on. But though we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel unto you than that which we have preached unto you, let him be accursed. As we said before, so say I now again, if any man preach any other gospel unto you, than that ye have received, let him be accursed. That's from Galatians 1 verses 8 and 9. He goes on, the spirit of scripture is one. And therefore we may be sure that decision for truth and separation from the erring are in full consistency with the charity of 1 Corinthians 13, to which we are continually pointed. It is true charity to those who err to refuse to aid and abet them in their errors. Charity sounds very prettily 
in the mouths of those who wish to screen themselves. But if they had exercised it in the past, they might not have driven us from among the people to whom we naturally belong. He had separated himself from people. And he says, if these people had practiced the charity and love and told about the errors which were taking place, then this wouldn't have happened. He was referring to his departure from the Baptist Union because of its doctrinal compromise. There's another man who, 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 who has written some very good commentaries, a man called Ironside. <coughs> good name, I think, for a man to write uh, Bible commentaries, Ironside, Harry Ironside. And here's his commentary on Revelation. Jezebel was adept, and it's obviously, I think, talking about Je uh, <coughs> Revelation 18. Jezebel was adept in the art of mixing. She undertook to unite the religion of Israel and the religion of Phoenicia. That is just what Romanism is, a mixture of heathenism, Christianity, and Judaism. It is not Christianity, yet there is in it quite a bit that is Christian. From where did its superstition and image worship come? It was all taken from heathenism under the plea that it would help to convert the pagans. The church became very accommodating. In the 4th, 5th and 6th centuries we find the church compromising with heathen rites and heathen ceremonies to such a degree that by the 7th century one could hardly tell heathen from Christian temples. The amalgamation is such that it is almost impossible to separate the one from the other. And in our day we have a lot of foolish Protestants who believe that the old Rome is now a harmless old pussycat sitting on the banks of the Tiber. She purrs so contentedly. They say, we never understood Rome. What a pity we ever had that reformation at all. And so efforts have been made to reunite the various great bodies of Christendom in one vast society headed by the Pope. This is the avowed purpose of many leaders in the larger Protestant bodies. What foolish people these Protestants are. Protestants who have long ceased to protect, protest against evil doctrine, forgetting the millions of lives that were sacrificed for the precious truth. But Protestant leaders are dazzled with the thought of a great united church and are hurrying us toward a union with Rome that scripture shows clearly enough will yet take place. And you know those comments there are very relevant in relation to the topic we come to today as we shall see. Now we're going to read in Deuteronomy chapter four, uh, 19 and verse 14. Just one verse today. Thou shalt not remove thy neighbor's landmark, which they of old time have set in thine inheritance, which thou shalt inherit in the land that the Lord thy God giveth thee to possess it. 
I'm going to look at this verse and see if we can get some help from it this morning. God had provided an inheritance for the whole of the people, a land flowing with milk and honey. They had this possession separated from the nations round about them. What a wonderful privileged position for this people of God. And they were about to enter into it, and this was Moses, we must remember, Moses was talking to them, going through the history of things that had passed and things that were going to happen uh, to them in the, in the near future. It was guaranteed to them by the word of God. But in addition to each individual within that nation, each individual within the nation had a special possession which they could call their own inheritance. There was a, a general inheritance, they were getting the land, but then each person within that, they were given their inheritance. In other words, they had a divinely appointed portion for themselves. And this is brought out, if we look at Joshua chapter 14, Joshua chapter 14, we have the position which sort of demonstrates this. Caleb, Caleb, uh, verse 9, verse 9 in, in Joshua 14. Caleb was one of the two men who entered into the promised land from the time of the original spies. Joshua the son of Nun and Caleb the son of Jephunneh were the only two that ever got through to the land of milk and honey. And it says here, verse 9, and Moses swore on that day, and it's Caleb talking to Joshua. Moses swore on that day, he says, Surely the land whereon thy feet have trodden shall be thine inheritance, and thy children's forever, because thou hast wholly followed the Lord my God. And now behold, the Lord kept me alive, as he said, these forty and five years, even since the Lord spake this word unto Moses, while the children of Israel wandered in the wilderness. And now, lo, I am this day fourscore and five years old, eighty-five years old. And yet, I am as strong this day as I was in the day that Moses sent me. As my strength was then, even so is my strength now. For war both to go out and to come in. Now therefore give me this mountain. He wanted his individual inheritance within the land. A divinely appointed inheritance. A divine proportionment. Now we could look at other uh, scriptures in this connection but we'll go on. Now there are two ways in which God showed his love to Israel. He showed his love in many ways, but there are two I just want to look at. Firstly, as a nation. And he still loves Israel as a nation. Let's not forget that. And secondly, as individuals. We looked at Deuteronomy 11 a while back. And God speaking, and Moses speaking, 
They were promised in Deuteronomy 11 verse 12, A land which the Lord thy God careth for. The eyes of the Lord thy God are always upon it, from the beginning of the year, even unto the end of the year. They were promised this land. A land, as we said, flowing with milk and honey, was under the eyes of the Lord at all times. Right from the beginning of the year, right through to the end of the year. Then, if they obeyed him, he would show that love in a very practical way. Deuteronomy 11:13, And it shall come to pass, if ye shall hearken diligently unto my commandments, which I command you this day, to love the Lord your God, and to serve him with all your heart and with all your soul, then I will give you the rain on your land in his due season, the first rain and the latter rain, that thou mayest gather in thy corn and thy wine and thy oil, and I will send grass in thy fields for thy cattle, that thou mayest eat and be full. This applied to the land which God was giving them. If the, the nation of Israel kept covenant with him, he would keep covenant with them. And then he goes on in verse 18, and it becomes more personal. It goes on, Therefore ye shall lay up the, these my words in your heart, your heart as individual and in your soul, and bind them for a sign upon your hand, that they may be as frontlets between your eyes. Ye shall teach them to your children, speaking of them, when thou sittest in thine house, and when thou walkest by the way, and when thou liest down, and when thou risest up. And thou shalt write them upon the doorposts of your house, of thine house, and upon thy gates. They were to maintain the national inheritance, as a nation, but each one personally had to safeguard their own God-given apportionment, their own inheritance, as they sat by their fireside, taught their children, put it on their doorpost. And now, if we move forward to the church the Bride of Christ, the Church of Jesus Christ. There is a divine inheritance which is not to be interfered with. A common inheritance to all. We have the scriptures which have been given to us once and for all. The doctrines of the Bible. They're not to be interfered with. God has laid down rules within scripture. You know, as a, as a group of Christians, we all have a divine inheritance, which is common to all. We have an inheritance reserved in heaven for us. We have a divine hope of the coming bridegroom for his bride. We are all children of God. We are joint heirs with Christ. We all have been given and are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. And we have had access by one spirit unto the Father. We are all saved by the one sacrifice of the Son of God, who is the one way to God. We are all on the one road to heaven. That's the church. All these blessings. But individually, each one has his divine portion within the church. And my portion is reserved, it says, in heaven for me. My name is written in heaven. 
we must walk each in communion with God individually within the whole body of the church Romans 14 verse 5 it says let every man be fully persuaded in his own mind let every man in Corinthians examine himself we all have our own walk with God individually and from this verse that we read today thou shalt not remove thy neighbor's landmark it is obligatory on each of us to walk ensuring the good of our neighbor and our fellow Christian that we do not encroach on his divinely appointed inheritance 1st John 4 verse 7 beloved let us love one another for love is of God and everyone that loveth is born of God and knoweth God Hebrews 10:24. let us consider one another to provoke unto love and to good works Romans 14 verse 13 let us therefore judge not let us not therefore judge one another anymore but judge this rather that no man put a stumbling block or an occasion to fall in his brother's way do not remove thy neighbor's landmark do not do anything that will affect your neighbor's walk with his saviour Isaiah 57 14 take up the stumbling block out of the way of my people God speaking we should have the mind of our saviour in this respect John 6.38 he said I came down from heaven Jesus speaking not to do mine own will but the will of him that sent me you know may we be encouragers to others in the church and not discouragers and so let's look at that verse again thou shalt not remove thy neighbor's landmark which they of old time have set in thine inheritance you know Peter said to the Lord Jesus when he was near the end before after the crucifixion you know the story well when Jesus spoke to Peter and Peter looked at another disciple and he said Lord what shall this man do Jesus said if I will that he tarry till I come what's that to thee follow thou me each one has his own individual walk within the church and his responsibility is to walk in such a way that it doesn't affect your neighbor in his walk with God now going on you know scripture has also a lot to say about landmarks a lot of verses about landmarks Proverbs 22:28, remove not the ancient landmark which thy fathers have set Proverbs 23:10 remove not the old landmark and enter not into the fields of the fatherless for their redeemer is mighty and he shall plead their cause for thee now that's a very serious verse as you'll see as we go on 
There are landmarks which people have moved within the church, within the doctrines of the church. And it's a very serious thing. It says, For their Redeemer is mighty, and he shall please plead their cause with thee. Be careful we don't move old landmarks. If we go to Hosea, chapter 5, after Daniel, Hosea chapter 5 and it sets out the various things that have taken place Ephraim is being rebuked because of the various things they've dealt treacherously against the Lord they have begotten strange children and so on Ephraim is oppressed and broken in judgment but God says in verse 10 the princes of Judah were like them that remove the bound remove the landmark therefore I will pour out my wrath upon them they had gone away from the teachings of, of God these doctrines which we read of in Deuteronomy and all the, the people had strayed away they were like people who removed the landmarks God would punish them you know some of you will have read it a while ago I wrote a couple of tracts on the subject of landmarks and benchmarks benchmarks are those things which are you'd see them on church buildings or on old government buildings on stone buildings you'd see a thing that looks a little bit like a convict's cross that you get on a convict uniform three little uh, legs and, a, and a mark across the top and what they are they are data marks there is a particular height above sea level and if somebody's going to build a, a roadway or a factory or something they try and find these landmarks and they can correlate all these landmarks into uh, datum for their building so that they know that they're on a particular level and these are in stone they can't be moved and within scripture there are benchmarks throughout scripture which can't be moved the Ten Commandments were written in stone a benchmark is in stone the doctrines of scripture for you and for me are written in stone and there are also landmarks you know I say in this little track that we do and I send you copies of it if you want to some time ago I was on Dartmoor and you know it's interesting I'm trying to think of the name of the place this morning but it's, it's, it's near uh, Whittacombe there's a place where there are engraved in stone the Ten Commandments unfortunately they're lying on their backs now and I thought that when we saw them we were saying it's just like the, the, the laws of God at the moment they have been discarded by men. They were written in stone on Dartmoor many years ago. But leading up to where they uh, are at the moment, there are various marking stones, landmarks, with initials on them. 
And there are many scattered throughout Bodmin and, and, and Dartmoor and other moors, I'm sure Exmoor as well. But I saw these ancient stones, and I was reminded when I saw them of these verses that we have quoted here this morning. Don't remove the ancient landmarks. How easy it would have been as we walked up that path to see the Ten Commandments <coughs> for an unscrupulous neighbour to move a benchmark, to move a, a landmark, to move one of these markers. And you know, the thing about it, if he was going to move it, he wouldn't move it a hundred yards all at once. He would move it a couple of feet come out again the next year and move it again and by degrees the boundary would be completely blurred <coughs> obscured and lost and what was originally to be a standard denoting the, the safety of the tenant as to the land he owned it's turned into something which is unstable, which is faulty, which is a stumbling block to truth and justice. You know, in ancient times, the removal of landmarks was a heinous thing, as we've read in the Bible. People who were unstable, people who were evil, were, were uh, put on the same level as people who moved landmarks. <coughs> there was a law in scripture. The Romans had a law about moving landmarks. In fact, they, they had a goddess that they named who was responsible for landmarks. Some of the ancient landmarks apparently had curses written on them uh, if anybody moved them. Yet, as we look at this subject in relation to churches, ancient landmarks and boundaries have been and are constantly still being removed and shuffled around at the whim of the leaders. There are New Testament doctrines, ancient landmarks. The, the, the scripture says that the doctrines have been given to us once for all. They're not movable, but they have been moved. And instead of being a help, they have become stumbling blocks. <coughs> In this little uh, track that I wrote, I, I mentioned the fact that years ago, uh, a solicitor contacted me because he was having trouble with a site where a developer seemed to have made a mess of things. And what it was, there was a plot of ground being sold for individual building sites. And when the first site was laid, an error was made in setting out the very first site. I'm sure the reason probably was quite logical, maybe at the time. Maybe there was a bit of a stream running through it, so they decided they would move the wall to the far side or the near side of the stream. It seemed a really logical thing to do probably at the time. And then when the second site came along, they also had made a slight error. 
and the error from the first sight and the second sight were compounded and so on as it went up the, up the, the, the field and he was interested in about the 12th or 13th sight and when we, we went along and looked at it what was left being the last sight on the development bore no resemblance to what it should have been the remaining piece of land was nothing like what was originally planned <clears throat> and you know the trouble was that the, the hope of ever rectifying that situation for all practical purposes was impossible there was no point in going to court over it because everybody on the field they were all incorrect and they had to come to some compromise in the end <clears throat> you know so soberly if we think about it error has crept into doctrines within the church and the teaching in the, in the churches to such an extent the situation has become so serious that any hope of ever getting back to biblical truths seems to have passed long ago it's a sad situation we can be sure also that if you seek to question the removal of these landmarks and as to why they were removed from the basis of scripture we shall be challenged by those church leaders or their associates who have been responsible for removing them many apparently logical expedient or convenient reasons will be put forward as to why it was necessary for ancient landmarks set in the Bible to be moved and these justifications are given as an excuse to change the word of God as we saw those comments by Spurgeon and others you will not be popular if you seek to query why these landmarks have been moved God's word has been replaced with the precepts of men Isaiah 29 and verse 13 Wherefore the Lord said, For as much as this people draw near me with their mouth and with their lips, do honour me with do honour me, but have removed their heart far from me, and their fear toward me is taught by the precept of men. Was happening in Isaiah's day, it is happening in our day. And one of the problems is that biblical terms are used to describe practices that are not in accordance with scripture. And I gave a little example that I had read in a book. And the chap said if I told a Jew that I had hyssop growing in my garden he might say oh I've never seen hyssop growing I'd love to see hyssop because it has such good connotations with scripture it was used in the Passover to put the, the blood on the, the, the uh, doorposts and on the lintel 
and uh, I, 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 I'd like to see hyssop. And then if I had shown him a hollyhock in full bloom and said to him, there it is there, that's, that's hyssop. And he'd say, no, that's hollyhock. Oh, no, but I say, I, I call it hyssop because I like to give biblical names to my plants in the garden. And he would reply that it was confusing to call something call something hyssop, which was in fact a hollyhock. And you know, that's ludicrous when you think of it. But that is what is happening in churches. They give biblical names to practices which have nothing to do with what that practice meant in scripture. Practices not in accordance with scripture are disguised and given a form of legitimacy by giving them biblical titles. And I suppose one of these would be baptism. Baptism in scripture was for believers by total immersion. It has nothing to do with sprinkling babies. But they still call it baptism. It's confusing. It's leading people astray. It's a stumbling block. It's moving the landmarks. And you know, Sunday by Sunday we bring various bits and pieces. And some of these landmarks which have been moved, the absolute sufficiency and inspiration of Scripture has been moved. They say believers' baptism has been moved to accommodate infant baptism. The many doctrines of the Roman Catholic Church, which even the Anglican prayer book calls repugnant to the plain teaching of Scripture, are now accepted by many Anglicans. I could go on, but it's not necessary. You know exactly what I mean. The landmarks have been removed. They have become stumbling blocks. Take up the stumbling block out of the way of my people, says God, in Isaiah 57 by 14. You know, as I say, Sunday by Sunday we keep bringing these stumbling blocks. And as a result of these boundary markers have been moved. The word of God is being attacked all around us today the supremacy of the scriptures have been discarded Christian life is in ruins in many areas because these stumbling blocks have caused it to be so and in closing I just want to read an email which I got yesterday from a non-Christian girl, a Jewish girl who sends me emails from time to time and it says on it this is very interesting and not the ending I had expected it's a story a few years ago after I was a few years after I was born my dad met a stranger who was new to our small Texas town. From the beginning, Dad was fascinated with this enchanting newcomer and soon invited him to live with our family. 
The stranger was quickly accepted and was around from then on. As I grew up, I never questioned his place in my family. To my young mind, he had a special niche. My parents were complementary instructors. Mum taught me good from evil. Dad taught me to obey. But the stranger, he was our storyteller. He would keep us spellbound for hours on end with adventures, mysteries and comedies. If I wanted to know anything about politics, history or science, he always knew the answers about the past, understood the present and even seemed able to predict the future. He took my family to their first major league ball game. He made me laugh and he made me cry. The stranger never stopped talking, but Dad didn't seem to mind. Sometimes Mum would get up quietly while the rest of us were shushing each other to listen to what he had to say, and she would go to the kitchen for peace and quiet. I wonder now if she ever prayed for the stranger to leave. Dad ruled our household with certain moral convictions, but the stranger never felt obligated to honour them. Provanity, for example, was not allowed in our home, not from us, our friends, or any visitors. Our long-time visitor, however, got away with four-letter words that burned my ears and made my dad squirm and my mother blush. My dad didn't permit the liberal use of alcohol. But the stranger encouraged us to try it on a regular basis. He made cigarettes look cool, cigars manly, and pipes distinguished. He talked freely, much too freely, about sex. His comments were sometimes blatant, sometimes suggestive, and generally embarrassing. I now know that my early concepts about relationships were influenced strongly by the stranger. Time after time, he opposed the values of my parents, yet he was seldom rebuked and never asked to leave. More than 50 years have passed since the stranger moved in with our family. He has blended right in and is not nearly as fascinating as he was at first. So, if you could walk into my parents' den today, you would still find him sitting over in his corner waiting for someone to listen to him talk and watch him draw his pictures. His name? We just call him TV. He has a wife now. We call her Computer. She went on to say, this should be required reading for every household. And just in finishing, may God help us to maintain our landmarks, the landmarks which have been set in Scripture.